Uh, but the headline-grabbing figure that we saw the other week was that credit card debt surpassed a trillion dollars in the U.S., and that's a problem because the Fed's rate hike cycle has also pushed the average credit card rate to 20%, which is near a record high. You're listening to IBKR Podcasts. Find more conversations at ibkrpodcasts.com. Please remember any trading discussions are for information purposes only and are not intended to portray recommendations. Please listen to further disclosures at the end of today's episode. Now, welcome to our show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to IBKR Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Praisman, along with Michael Normile, NASDAQ's U.S. economist. In this podcast, we're going to discuss the headwinds of consumers facing and the consumer spending's effect on the economy. Welcome, Michael. Thank you for joining us. Thanks. Glad to be here. Uh, it's great to have you back. So let's just kind of start with how does the average American's accumulated, you know, excess savings look now compared to peak levels? Sure. So I'll start by defining excess savings for everyone, since it's a relatively new concept. Uh, that's it's basically just the amount of money that people saved since the pandemic started above and beyond the pre-pandemic trend in savings. And so people were able to save a lot of extra money during the pandemic for a few reasons. First, the, the, everyone was stuck at home, so they couldn't spend money on traveling or going out. And then we had government stimulus checks that padded people's bank, bank accounts. And also there were the enhanced unemployment benefits. So that meant that a lot of people made more money on unemployment than they did at their previous job. Uh, so for all these reasons, Americans accumulated about $2 trillion in excess savings at the peak in the middle of 2021, according to most estimates. Now, though, it's estimated that we're down to about $200 billion in excess savings as of Q2, so a tenth of the peak level. And estimates are that excess savings will be gone by this third quarter. Are there demographics that are struggling more than others with save? Obviously, excess savings is down a huge amount. Are there demographics that are struggling more than others or just savings down all across, you know, all financial levels? Yeah, savings are definitely down across the board. And many expect that it's, you know, lower income households in particular are worst off where they've actually have already exhausted their excess savings at this point. Because the, the number that we're looking at is an aggregate number. So it could be that, you know, the suspicion is that wealthier demographics have still have some excess savings, whereas people on the lower end more than likely have already spent their excess savings at this point. And that's, you know, of course, with higher inflation that we've experienced in the last couple of years, people have had to dip into those savings to make end, ends meet. That's why the expectation is that people on the lower end of the income spectrum have probably exhausted their excess savings at this point. It's possible that wealthier households, however, may never need to spend down their excess savings. So the, the good news, though, is that Bank of America data does show that checking and savings account balances are higher across the income spectrum relative to pre-pandemic levels. And that likely reflect mix of excess savings and wage gains that we've seen over the last few years. It kind of leads me to this question, though, even with the quote unquote wealthier households that most likely have some excess savings left or all their excess savings from pre-peak levels. Do you think, given our current economic climate, though, do you think that their spending behavior will change? And even if they still have this excess savings, they won't necessarily be spending as much and putting as much money into the economy? Honestly, it's possible that that has already happened. I think some people believe that the reason that we've managed to avoid avoid recession to this point is that with all the talk of an impending recession over the past year, people already adjusted their spending habits a bit, being a bit more cautious. And we've actually seen the savings rate has picked up since the middle of last year, although it's still below pre-pandemic levels. So there's some sign that people have been a 
you know, enhancing their kind of precautionary savings a little bit. But the shift could become more pronounced as people run out of excess savings on a, a wider scale. And of course, you know, the other side of savings is debt. What is the current trend with consumer debt as this excess savings has, you know, sort of dwindled down? Right. So debt's been rising and that's not really that surprising, right? We've seen home prices rising over the last few years, so they naturally require bigger mortgages and the average car price is over $40,000. So uh, that's going to require larger auto loans. Uh, but the headline grabbing figure that we saw the other week was that credit card debt surpassed a trillion dollars in the U.S. And that's a problem because the Fed's rate hike cycle has also pushed the average credit card rate to 20 percent, which is near a record high. But there are a few bits of good news. First, we had lenders have learned their lesson from the financial crisis. So home and auto loans have gone to more credit worthy individuals on average. And we've also had a decade plus of low rates. So a lot of debt was locked in at very low long term fixed rates and only about 10% of outstanding household debt in aggregate is adjustable rate because so much of it is you know, fixed rates for mortgages and things like that, where it's a long-term fixed rate. And then lastly, with incomes rising so much in recent years, if you look at credit card debt as a share of income, it's actually not that stretched by historical standards. So credit risk is lower and rate risk is is relatively low too. So kind of going along with debt, because obviously you can, you can have debt, but you can still, people have debt, but they're making timely payments, it seems like a lot less of a, an issue than people that have debt and aren't even able to make their payments. So has the frequency that people are late with payments increased at all? Where is that compared to, say, peak levels? Definitely seen delinquency rates rise from their lows in 2021. And that had that low period happened side with the peak in excess savings, which you know, makes sense. Fortunately, though, even as they've come up, they're still more or less around the pre-pandemic levels at this point. And those pre-pandemic levels are even about half or less than half of the delinquency rates that we saw during the financial crisis. So it's still at you know relatively innocuous level at this point. The United States is, a, is obviously a, a huge geographical country with you know different you know the Northeast, you got you know Southeast, Midwest. Pacific Northwest, Pacific Southwest. Is the delinquency rate kind of vary between geographical areas or is it sort of kind of evened out between the different regions? No, no real difference between the different geographical regions or are there sort of certain areas of the country that seem to be struggling more than others? Yeah, there's definitely a lot of variation across the country uh, depending depending on region. So for, for example, if you look at the country with the highest delinquency, or I'm sorry, the state with the highest delinquency rate right now, that's Texas whereas the lowest is California. And it's a pretty significant gap. It's about double the rate in Texas as it is in California. So it can be quite varied across uh, state lines and across regions uh, and seeing relatively significant gaps as well. And you, t you touched on this a little bit earlier with one of your answers when you discussed the difference between, say, fixed rate debt and variable rate debt. And you know, so obviously kind of to dive a little bit more into it, credit card payments, car payments, mortgage payments, you know, sort of you can kind of go in a little bit more detail about how it's affecting, say, credit card payments and car payments versus mortgage payments. If I have a low mortgage, I'm in really good, I'm in really good shape, except for the fact that if I want to sell my house and get another house, whether I'm trading up or trading down, then all of a sudden my three percent mortgage might go to six and a half, seven percent mortgage. And maybe I'm so that I would assume has some sort of effect on the market as well. I think uh, you're right in, in thinking that the biggest challenges for consumers right now are the more variable rate things like credit cards and then as well as, uh, as, as car payments. So we see delinquency rates on credit cards and car loans are actually about triple the rate for mortgages. And the good news is that 
bankruptcies and foreclosure rates remain below pre-pandemic levels. Uh, and like you were saying about the impact on changing mortgage rates, um, that's definitely a factor we see uh, since since right before the Fed started hiking rates to now, the monthly mortgage payment for the median priced home has increased from less than $1,400 per month to more than $2,100 per month. So that's an increase of more than 50%. And in that time period, home prices are only up uh, just over 10%. So a lot of that is the higher mortgage rates that are that are driving that increase. And like you said, a lot of people bought homes or refinanced in, in the last few years. So about 60% of people have mortgage rate that's under 4%. So with prices up in recent years, rates at 7%, housing affordability is now about as bad as it's ever been. And so that's kept people with low rates from wanting to sell their homes, creating a lack of supply available of homes available for sale. But that's also created a bit of a new trend lately where people have been pushed into the new home market, but that's kind of a, a separate issue. And with my last question, sort of a sort of the elephant in the room, you know, student debt payments have been kind of, I guess, frozen for the last three years and people with student debt haven't had to make a payment, but yeah, that's about to end. And with every other headwind coming at, you know, consumers, college is, is extremely expensive these days. The student debt is extremely high. And this just seems to be like another headwind for millions of Americans, and especially probably even you know, more on the younger side that might just be trying to start out, get a, you know, get their foot in the door, you know, kind of start building up their savings, start, you know, maybe they would be looking to, you know, go from an apartment to a house. So how do you think this, you know, once the student debt payments come into it as another headwind, you know, how will this affect the economy? Right. So estimates are that it's about 20 million Americans that are restarting student loan payments in October. And that's, you know, after three years of not making those payments, a lot of people certainly got used to having that extra money in their pocket, not having to set that aside. And some people even took that as an opportunity to take on more debt uh, during that period. So it's definitely going to be a challenge for a lot of people in terms of what it will do for consumer spending. For example, estimates are that it will subtract about $9 billion a month from consumer spending. It's important to remember that monthly consumer spending is about $1.5 trillion dollars. So it's not actually that big of a drag as it relates to consumer spending. So most estimates are that it's going to take around 0.1% off of spending this year and a bit more next year. So it's definitely a headwind to the economy for sure. And at a time where we already have all the interest rate hikes and, and other headwinds facing the economy, it is mitigated by the fact that a lot of student loan debt is with higher income households. And so they have that mix of ex excess savings uh, left over that we discussed, along with higher incomes where they can better absorb the the cost of uh, a student loan payment coming back into their monthly bills. It may have a, an effect on an individual family, but the overall economy, it's going to be just a little bit of a, a blip, basically. And it shouldn't, you know, while individual households may suffer from having this extra payment, the overall economy, it's going to just be a slight headwind and not a major bump in the road for it. Right. I think that's a fair assessment. I think it's going to be, of course, on a case-by-case -case basis, it's always going to be certain people where it will be a big challenge, depending on how their circumstances have changed over the last few years. But in aggregate, it's not. Um, it might be getting more media attention than necessarily uh, is related to the amount of impact it will have on the economy. Once again, I'd like to thank our guest, Michael Normile from NASDAQ, for joining us at IBKR Podcast. For more from Michael and NASDAQ, please go to our website under education to view previous uh, NASDAQ webinars and podcasts. I also want to remind everyone that you can find all our podcasts on our website under education. Scroll down to IBKR Podcasts or on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Music, 
Amazon Music, Podbeam, Google Podcasts, and Audible. Thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm Jeff Praisman with Interactive Brokers. Thanks for listening to IBKR Podcasts. As always, we have more episodes at ibkrpodcasts.com. And if you're interested in learning more about interactive brokers, visit ibkr.com. We offer more trading education material, such as webinars at ibkrwebinars.com, financial and economic commentary at tradersinsight.news, market-related courses at tradersacademy.online, and quant-related articles at ibkrquant.com. The analysis in this material is provided for information only and is not and should not be construed as an offer to sell or the solicitation of an offer to buy any security. To the extent that this material discusses general market activity, industry or sector trends, or other broad-based economic or political conditions, it should not be construed as research or investment advice. To the extent that it includes references to specific securities, commodities, currencies, or other instruments, those references do not constitute a recommendation by IBKR to buy, sell, or hold such investments. The material does not and is not intended to take into account the particular financial conditions, investment objectives, or requirements of individual customers. Before acting on this material, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and is necessary, seek professional advice.